Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There are no two words in the English language more harmful than good job. I don't know whether you like movies. I'm tremendously fond of them. Don't go to the cinema much anymore. I think there's so much garbage out. But a good movie, a really good movie, it can be not just enjoyable, but it can be so educational. It really gets you thinking. There's something about drama. I mean, the, the, the Greek philosophers were right. Drama is a it's quasi-religious experience. There's something about it. I don't go to the theatre much. I find that just too intense. But even some films, I find the acting so good and the, the script writing so good that sometimes I have to just stop the film and, and do something else for a while. It's, it's winding me up too much. They're depicting human pain and human misery too well. I can only take so much of it. This film is called Whiplash. A really excellent film. Disturbing, but excellent. As Jordan Peterson never stops reminding us, there is no such thing as an internal journey, as a journey inside somebody, whether it's yourself or others, which is not going to be fraught with danger and disturbing. Human beings are beautiful, brilliant and utterly dangerous. If you think a tiger in a zoo is a masterpiece of elegant, beautiful danger, that's nothing to a human being. And we don't even look it. We look quite harmless. Whiplash is a film that investigates that. And it's wonderfully cast. You have Miles Teller playing a young man who's uh, determined to make it in, in music. And his calling is in jazz music and his specific vocation is that of a drummer great thing to be an artist and musician and he's studying at this remarkable uh, institute called the the Schaefer Musical Academy it's fictional maybe based on the Juilliard I don't I don't know and the teacher he meets is the teacher from hell and back this teacher teaches part-time in purgatory but has tenure in hell at hell comprehensive and J.K. Simmons veteran American actor got I think an Oscar as best supporting actor for this. So Teller, who plays really a very bland role, acts as a kind of a foil to Simmons' almost demonic character. He's not demonic in the sense, he's demonic more in the old Greek sense. He's not demonic in the sense of an evil demon. He is possessed. He is a teacher possessed by passionate love of his subject. And those of us who've been lucky enough to meet teachers like that and fortunate enough to survive the encounter know what you're talking about. You never forget those teachers. Now they're no joke and some of them you suspect are half mad but they are absolutely crazy about their subject and it's infectious. You catch it from them as if it were a cold and it's a combination of knowledge and passion or as, as Yeats used to say passion and cunning that make up the poet, the artist. And Simmons plays this teacher who's himself an accomplished and a passionate jazz musician and this man is determined to be the tutor of the new Charlie Parker, of a new jazz genius, Charlie Parker, known as the Bird. And unbeknownst to Teller, he fixes on him. And his methods are absolutely immoral and ruthless. He plays a nice man in order to get a whole load of personal details about his life and then uses them against him in front of everybody. He curses at him, he throws furniture at him, he swears at him, he manipulates, he's emotionally abusive. He's a force of nature, a terrifying teacher. And he, he has seen something in, in the character played by Teller 
at one stage, as your man is practicing, he has, you know those buckets of ice for champagne that they have in good restaurants? In fact, they probably even have them in bad ones. He has that beside the drums and he's plunging his hands into the buckets ever so often and the blood is staining the ice water because the flesh is coming off his knuckles and fingers from the, the drumsticks. And at one stage, he plays a virtuoso performance in order to get a place in a concert. And Simmons, teacher, he announces, uh, you've got the part. And he turns around casually. Someone cleaned the blood of those drums. I, I don't know if I've ever seen recently brought out so well the price of great art. Simmons is, if you like, the priest of this. Simmons is the leader in this. He is the spiritual director in this. He's a terrifying personality. But he, he's terrifying in the sense that his personality is fueled by the awfulness of the sacrifice that has to be made on this altar. In order to produce, as Yeats said, Yeats has this poem called Adam's Curse where he talks about art. He says, since Adam, there's nothing beautiful but requires much labouring. I can't remember the exact words now, but there's just no way of coming up now with beautiful things for mortal man and woman, except that it's done in tears and suffering and, and tremendous labour. You have to get your hands dirty. I'm telling you now that that's the apostolate. You may have been lucky enough never to meet a teacher like that man. But I think what I'm saying is you may have been unlucky enough never to have met a teacher like that man. Now I'm going to say something more to you. Is that some of those hellfire preachers in the past that are now described as if they were horror films actually were similar characters to the teacher in Whiplash. They were determined to find the new Charlie Parker. They were determined to teach people to master their trade, which was that of being Christi Fideles Laici, Christ's lay faithful. That of being simply a Catholic. Simply, although the process of doing that is far from simple. And there is no way of doing it without your hands bleeding. As your man Simmons says over a drink in a bar in a conversation with his student, there are no two words in the English language more harmful than good job. He is obsessed with perfection. I want to talk about the lay apostolate, the lay person as spiritual leader. The priest does it in a spiritually functional sense. He has the ministerial priesthood. But the lay person does it in a whole load of other ways in so-called ordinary life because the lay person has the burden as the council reminded us the lay person has the burden of the sanctification of the temporal order the lay person has to make the world holy the lay person has to run the world and leadership is a huge issue for lay people just let's look very very briefly at what the secular world has to say about leadership let's go out and have a drink with the pagans for a while and see what the talk is out there in the marketplace, in the agora, as the Greeks used to say. What are they talking about leadership? Leadership nowadays is actually, it's a sort of pseudoscience. It's really a bit like education and a few other subjects. It's not a proper discipline, but it's an absolutely essential study. So it draws on a lot of other disciplines. I think people who come to the fore in leadership studies are often historians by training. And maybe sociologists, psychologists, and you can see how that would happen. 
James McGregor Burns is one of the most famous of modern writers on leadership. He has a book called Simply Leadership, I think it was 1978, and it's a classic. And Burns comments about leadership uh, that it's a complex and remarkable form of interrelationship. So there's a huge debate in leadership about this great man theory. Come at the hour, come at the man. And leadership is all about the leader. But leadership can't be all about the leader because, as Newman said, the church would look very strange without the laity. A leader without the lead is ridiculous. Yet the lead sound as if they're passive and it sounds as if they're of no account. That's absolute rubbish. It's a dance. Do you, you know John Waters? A great and prophetic voice. And a man who is, he has a lot of wounds from this, this present situation. Where a, a lovely and great man, John Waters. Very, very prophetic man. John Waters wrote a book there back about 1990 called Jiving at the Crossroads. And Jiving at the Crossroads was a book about Irish society and politics at the time, which he correctly and prophetically said was on the cusp of an enormous change. He was, I think, editor of Hot Press before that. And he took the metaphor of the jive because the jive is a complex enough dance between two people, but it looks as if the woman makes all the going. She's whirling and dancing, and women had dresses that were made for this particular type of dancing. Frocks that spread out. And she seems to make all the going, and the man really seems quite drab. But if you watch a couple who know how to dance, and I've seen it, the man actually does have quite complex and subtle steps. And he also needs to be able to hold the woman in perfect balance while she moves. If he lets go, the whole dance falls apart. And water is used as a metaphor for the relationship between the politician and his people. And leadership has that quality. It's an interrelationship. What is the leader without the lead? I mean, we talk about charisma. And charisma comes from a Greek word, meaning a gift, one gifted by the gods, one touched by the gods. But to just go on about charisma totally underestimates the extent to which, uh, to quote the Ku Cullen saga, the hero light shines on the brow of the leader because the people see it there. There is no point in the gods touching somebody if people can't see that the gods have touched them. How many leaders never get to lead? You remember that lovely poem, Grey's Elegy in a Country Churchyard? Each in his narrow cell forever laid the rude forefathers of the hamlet sleep. And the poet wonders how many Cromwells lie in those graves. It's in a country churchyard. Uh, a Cromwell guiltless of his country's blood. How many so-and-sos, how many great politicians never got to be great politicians? Because they were just, they were talented, but they were just poor people in a remote village. It's a very complex relationship. Bernard Bass, who's a, a major figure in secular leadership studies and held, a, I think, a professorship in one of the top, maybe Harvard, one of the top universities. He says, leaders are agents of change. Persons whose acts affect other people more than other people's acts affect them. Uh, another classic textbook on leadership by Katz and Kahn say they talk about the differential exertion of influence, typical of leadership. And French and Raven, in a classic study of leadership, they, they talk about leadership in terms of influence and influence in terms of psychological change. So the secular experts studying leadership from the point of view of sociology, politics, history, psychology, social psychology, all these different backgrounds, they're talking about psychological change, influence, the ability to influence the behaviour of another. But as they also point out, the lead 
influence the behaviour of the leader. And it's nearly impossible to work out where one ends and the other begins. Did you see how in the last podcast, when I started talking about the laity, I couldn't stop talking about the priesthood? And how when you talk about the priesthood, you can't stop talking about the laity. And yet somebody might hear that and they say, oh, what a clericalist. Oh, he's absolutely awful. He's supposed to be talking about the laity and he can't shut up about the priesthood. That's because we are, as St. Paul points out in 1 Corinthians, we are one body. And it's pointless talking about the hand without talking about the whole body. Because the hand only makes sense when it's attached to a body. Now, one of the great students of leadership, of charismatic leadership, the secular authorities, again, when they're talking about leadership, they distinguish, and McGregor Burns was a leader in this, they distinguish between transactional leadership, which is quid pro quo. You tend to find that in good times, where people just want a manager. Now, when I say just, a manager is a remarkable thing. It's not everyone can do that. In fact, it's very few. Keep the whole thing in their head and keep things moving, keep people working, you know, hold everything together. And then in different times, people may want a more spiritual experience because people are religious no matter what they call that. So, for instance, I would say Sinn Féin, for instance, are a religious movement, para-religious movement. The SNP are a para-religious movement. I would say Fianna Fáil was once a para-religious movement, maybe even Fine Gael. Brendan O'Hare, he's long dead, the Irish journalist, he described an old woman. She was taunted by a, a Fine Gael politician when De Valera took a shilling off the pension, which was a disaster. And he said, what do you think of your hero now, he said to her, because she was a lifelong Fianna Fáil supporter. He, he said, will you vote for him now after what he's after doing to you? And she answers back passionately. She said, I would vote for him if I had to starve and die on the road. Now, that's not quite a transactional relationship. That's not quite quid pro quo. That's not, I, I'll vote for him because he'll get me the pension. He's just took a shilling off the pension. <laughs> you see where I'm going with this and where they're going with it. That's very, very interesting. Wasn't it Yates who asked in the GPO in 1916 what stalked through the post office? It's a very great line, what stalked through the post office? Once you unleash the spiritual powers of a people, and Pierce kept going on about the myths, that the myths were the key to a people, but he had a point. Everyone thought he was obsessed with fairy stories. Pierce was, he was trained as a lawyer, as Chesterton said, one of the trades of iron. Chesterton commented the English were always saying the Irish were so impractical and yet he said they excels at the trades of iron. Great lawyers, great soldiers, great priests. He listed them off, all the trades in which mistakes are, can be so catastrophic and carry such a high price. The trades of iron. Pierce was trained in that and in the makings of a first-class barrister. He was a first-class teacher and a brilliant educationalist. Pierce knew what he was talking about. The myths contained the dreams of the people. Historically, the great dream of the people was where the myths found their, their completion and their answer and their fulfilment in the Pauline sense found their completion. They were yearning, they were groaning in travail. They found their completion in the, in the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ completed. He completed the Old Testament. But I'm on thin ice here, I know, but sometimes you just have to venture out on thin ice. He also answered all the yearnings of the pagan religions, many of whom, to a remarkable extent, seem, I mean, Virgil talked about the, the, the child born of the virgin, didn't he? He talked about this special boy that was, that was coming. Pierce, he was right to identify that. What stalked through the post office when you start that? These are quasi-religious movements. So sometimes people want more. 
And I think the truth is people always want more. People, as the Greek philosophers pointed out, as Plato, Aristotle pointed out, as Aquinas pointed out, people want to be happy. They're a tropism. Like plants, they turn to the sun. They turn to the source of happiness. The guy who mugs you and takes your wallet just wants to be happy. He didn't have a wallet, now he has a wallet. It's better. Okay, you're not happy, but you can't have everything. People do terrible things just through wanting to be happy. You look at that old footage of all the crowds cheering Hitler. Listen to the shouts of Sieg Heil and tell me. Hitler was a Catholic. He, was, he, he served mass. He was brought up as a Catholic. Or Stalin was a seminarian. Hitler wasn't. He's an altar boy. He used religious language all the time to the extent that some people would regard uh, Nazism and fascism as perversions of Catholicism. You look at those crowds shouting Sieg Heil, isn't that straight out of the Book of Revelation? Isn't it the thousands of the Cherubim and the Seraphim circling the Godhead shouting, Ayos, 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 Holy, Holy, Holy. It's a perversion of the Divine Celestial Court. People yearn to be happy. We cannot be happy simply through being loved. We must love to be happy. We are made for love. We must pour out this raging love that is inside us. We must praise. We must adore. Again, didn't some French intellectual say, sooner or later, every man must bend the knee to something greater than himself. Better kneel to God. It's the least humiliating option. And this is what I mean. This is where the lay person, the lay apostle is called to minister. You think you're going out into this so-called secular environment like, you know, those dark satanic mills of in Blake's vision. You think you're going out into that totally secular environment that has no sense or interest in God anymore. You are totally mistaken. You are totally wrong in that. It's far more dangerous than that. And it's far more interesting than that. They are still worshipping God. It's a different God. Because they can't stop yearning to worship. And so they worship money and they worship fame and they worship beauty because they long for beauty. And that longing for beauty is seen in the celebrity culture as much as it's seen in the medieval cathedrals. I kid you not. I love Americanisms. The Americans wouldn't say kid. They'd be rather earthier. Right? I'm not messing with you. You're still preaching to the choir. The choir just don't know that you're a qualified conductor. That's your problem. Now, that's a big problem because choirs are terrifying social beasts. And they could sling you over the gallery in a second. The problem isn't that the choir don't know how to sing. The problem isn't that the choir don't want to sing. The problem is that the choir don't accept you as a singing master. Didn't Yeats look up at the mosaics in Ravenna? Yeats tried many religions and he gave up on all of them. Get the Gon von Heugel book with blessings on your head, he said about the German theologian of the time. He looked up at the mosaics in Ravenna and he said, isn't it in sailing to Byzantium? O sages standing in God's holy fire, pern in a gyre and be the singing masters of my soul. The singing masters of my soul. Remember we go back to Whiplash? The singing masters. You are going out into a world that is passionate about music. It longs to sing. It longs to have a song worthy of singing. It wants to sing to God. It wants to worship God. It wants to adore God. It is weary with being betrayed, but it doesn't believe anymore in the true God. And that is the scale of the tragedy. And it's your job to go out and awaken the Charlie Parker and all of them. And you may end up in jail, my friend, for doing this. There is no way to do this 
without being a terrifying singing master. There is something scary about all the apostles. There's something scary about every, every priest. There's something scary about every true believer. And I know religion is dangerous. I totally accept that. There's the danger of fanaticism and fanaticism is the caricature of true religion. But I'm telling you now, there is no way around this. If you want to be a Catholic and you just want to blend in, you just want to keep this private, I'm telling you now to run as hard and fast as you can away from Catholicism because you are on the road to hell. You do this to God. What can he do for you? You can mess him around. We crucified him and he'll forgive you. How does he deal with it when you do it in such a way that you can't, you can't even see it anymore yourself? What can he do for you then? And you have to answer this call. You have to answer this call. Now you'll say back to me, oh, well, we have to be clever. We have to. Yes, you do. I totally accept that. But here we're into a dangerous business. Catholics love spy films. You like spy films? I love spy films. Catholics love this crap. We love it, we love it, we love it. We love, we love intrigue, we love spy films, we love plots, we love conspiracies, we adore this stuff. Because if you believe in the overarching and perfect plan that lies behind everything, you see this everywhere, <laughs> you know? You're a master of this. We know how interesting life really is. It's not that we're surprised when life is interesting, which a lot of people are. We're surprised when life is boring because we know how intense the battle is. I mean, we're in a cold war that is really a hot war. And yes, you're dead right. Sometimes you have to be diplomatic. Sometimes you have to blend in. Sometimes you have to be, but that is a really dangerous business. Running spies is a dangerous business because the better the spy, you never know when the blighter is working for the other side. You don't know what, guy like that, girl like that, you don't know what they do. And the better they are, the dicier it is. To be a, a lay Catholic in the modern world, it's an interesting thing. A friend of mine said that uh, on Ash Wednesday, he always looks around in business meetings and the ones with the crosses on their foreheads, they're the real bastards. They're the ones you don't cross. <laughs> and he said it as a criticism, you know, is that their Catholicism was so lightly worn. But I was kind of chuffed about it. So that's a real Catholic. Real Catholics are not teddy bears. They are not teddy bears. They're very serious people. They're people who are, who are always one step away from hell and they know it. You know that series Ice Truckers? I mean, these guys are used, to, they operate in Alaska. They operate in the Sahara. They operate in the extremes. They're liminal. They're out on the edge the whole time. These are chancers, con men. The real Catholic is in a well-cut suit with a trilby hat, always moving in the shadows. He may end up making a fortune or he may end up doing life in prison. You think I'm romanticizing this? Of course I'm romanticizing this. It's because the romantics are right. Life is amazing. Life is for living. It's amazing. And I know I'm, I'm settling into truisms here and I'm being trite, but you just lose words trying to describe life. Can you imagine what it's like to describe God? Can you imagine that? Now can you blame the poor people you're going out to witness to around you? I mean, it's like Joseph Mary Plunkett. They see his blood upon the rose. They just don't know what they're looking at. They're worshipping in every direction. They're bowing to every little thing that passes because he is there everywhere. But they don't know that. They don't know that it's him that's there. And so that's what you have to do. And I mean, you're not going to be welcome. Great teachers are rarely welcome. Great teachers are often unpopular, but everyone's breaking to get into their classes. Their parents will nearly pay money to get their kid into those classes. Great teachers get you reading, they get you thinking, they get you breathing and living the subject. You, you'll never sleep a good night's sleep again if you if you have a top class teacher. But my goodness, will you live an amazing life? This is whiplash the singing masters of my soul. And that's what the lay Catholic is called to do. You are a troublemaker at your mother's breast. That's where you learn this. 
you're a chancer and a troublemaker and, and a revolutionary and a stirrer. That's what you are. And a civilised society would jail you as quick as they can get hold of you. Even though you might have broken a single law. You're a dangerous man. You're a dangerous woman. Who was it said about Lord Byron that he was mad, bad and dangerous to know? And that's the so-called lay Catholic. People want to be happy. Listen to me. If I could tell you two great motivations that people live out of, I'm just throwing this out to you here and it's not original. We're standing on the shoulders of giants. I don't have an original thought in my head. I'm just intense, that's all. It's not original. Beauty and the beast. What you're attracted to, what you're repelled by. And they're like a Janus face. You know Janus, the Roman god? He had two faces. It's a Janus face. You're repelled by what frightens you because it threatens the deprivation of the good. So you're frightened if you're being chased down a road by an angry bear because you don't want to be torn to pieces. It's not an unreasonable wish. You wish to keep your life. You're repelled by ugliness because you have known beauty, because you can appreciate beauty. You can aspire to possess beauty. See, when I was teaching, you know, sometimes your first instinct, sometimes a lad would say that what he wanted to be was a, a professional soccer player. And to be well known, the lad couldn't kick a ball reliably in any direction. So people would be tempted to die laughing. But wasn't it very interesting that he would say that? I mean, from a teacher's point of view, it's very interesting that somebody who isn't much of a soccer player sees himself like that. You wouldn't look the same way at that lad again, even if the dream is daft. You wouldn't quite look at him the same way. It's very that's a very interesting guy. He has something of God about him. That guy feels God inside him. He feels the greatness that's inside him. This is the so-called lay Catholic. The, this is the kingly commoner. The lay Catholic who was called to leadership as Christ was anointed priest, prophet and king. And here, here in this pursuit of beauty, in this running from the beast, which is really just two sides of the same thing, we are passionately attracted to beauty and we are terrified of losing it. So we run towards things, we run from things. You're going out into this world into this magnificent, beautiful, utterly dangerous world to preach the faith of Jesus Christ. But like St. Paul in front of the council of the Areopagus, the God whom I preach, you in fact already worship because I have seen that you had an altar inscribed to an unknown God. The Greeks were very canny, you see. They had all their gods, but the Greeks believed there were loads of gods. And who wanted to make enemies, right? So they had an altar to, to an unknown God. Because who knows? And Paul said, well, I'm here to talk to you about the God you're already praying to. You've gone to considerable expense to worship my God. I'm going to tell you about him. To an unknown God. That's the world you're going out into as a lay Catholic. That's the temporal order that you have to sanctify. This is a, a remarkable, restless and difficult vocation. And you have to hide the fact that you're a nomad by virtue of your divine vocation and your baptism. You don't belong. And that's the hardest thing about, you know, it's bad enough for the priest who never belongs anywhere. But you don't belong. And Antimine was married to a guard, a lovely man. They're both dead now, the Lord have mercy on the two of them. But I remember she commented to me long, uh, sometime after he died, she was moving house. And she said, you know, she said, we have great neighbours, but the guard belongs nowhere. And the same is true of his family. And of course, the guard is the servant of the state and the vision right from the beginning of the Irish state was the guards would be unarmed. They would operate on their moral authority, on their moral power. It's a great thing to be proud of as an unarmed police force. Tremendously civilised thing and civilising thing. We inherited that from the English. 
An unarmed police force, although unfortunately the old RAC weren't unarmed. But the Garda Shekhana were. And are. There again, like, is that the lay Catholic is called to witness in this remarkable world, to sanctify this remarkable world, and to do that in virtue of his or her faith. And you look, go back again to the secular authorities on leadership. There's a, a writer on leadership called David McClelland, and he remembers watching Kennedy give a speech. And he was astonished at the effect that Kennedy's speech was having on people. He could see people visibly starting to straighten in their seats. He could see them physically change in front of him. And he was absolutely fascinated by this. And he realised that it wasn't simply Kennedy. Although Kennedy did attract hero worship. It was that Kennedy was making them feel better about themselves. Kennedy was like a priest revealing the mysteries to the initiates. And they were starting to sit up straight in their chairs. They were starting to feel that they had more power over things. Do you remember what he said? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you... He was making them feel like the heroes they were called to be. The lay Catholic is a hero. The lay Catholic is an orator and a poet. The lay Catholic is called to be a saint. And that is what you're called to be in the world. You are called to lead in the world. And this leadership, it can be very obvious sometimes. And sometimes it calls to be diplomatic. Sometimes you have to stay in the shadows. Sometimes you have to step forward. It takes tremendous judgment. It takes great patience. It takes great skill. It takes great faith. It takes great courage. All these gifts that St. Paul promised, that St. Paul said were to everybody. And some of them you would have more than others, as Paul indicated. But don't think for a second, because you're not a priest, you're not called to do this. The priest does it in a different way. You're called to all of this. And you can't stop being a Catholic in the world. So if you're a Catholic TD, you can't stop being a Catholic when you go into the Dáil. You may have to be canny about how you do it, but you can't stop being a Catholic. Thomas More, in front of his accusers, used every trick in his formidable legal training. He did not give them one reason, humanly, they could put him to death. In this, he imitated, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ at his trial. But you could also say he imitated Socrates at his. He, he just insisted that they take ownership of what they were about to do to him. He wasn't going to make them mad. He wasn't going to incite them. He was humble. He was careful in his answers. He made sure that they knew what they were going to do to him and let them own what they were going to do to him. And that was tremendous witness in itself. He had no wish to be a martyr. He wanted to live. But if martyrdom had to be, then he took it. And I love his witty response to the woman. It's a reliable story. A woman called out to him as he was going to the scaffold, uh, reminding him that he had some papers belonging to her case. Because, of course, he was a brilliant lawyer. And he replied to her, he said, Madam, he said, uh, the king is about to solve all of my problems. I will have to let him attend to your business as well. And he trudged on to the scaffold. He had no wish to die, but it was, what, it was God's will. And so there are many tremendous examples in the secular world of leadership and we can benefit from them all. I love the story of Grant, who was the American general, later president, he was the most unheroic of heroes, sitting gloomily on his horse while bullets whipped into the trees above him. He wore a private's uniform with just the, the stars of a general on his shoulders. His wife could not keep him tidy. 
a bit like Chesterton's wife. And he just sat on his horse gloomily chewing on his cigar and finally only turned when his soldiers absolutely made him go back. Robert E. Lee, the great general whose statue apparently has been overthrown in several American cities lately, a a remarkable, most Christian man and a great gentleman, Lee only went back to the back of his troops before some famous attack when the whole army started shouting to him to go to the back. They wouldn't start until he had gone to the back. They were afraid he'd get killed. These are leaders who, Wellington, who was constantly in danger. You know, these are leaders. Napoleon was constantly in danger. I mean, they weren't perfect, but they were great generals and they were constantly in danger. Alexander the Great led from the front. In some ways, an evil man. In some ways, a very brilliant and great man. They led from the front the whole time. And I'm not saying that made them good or made them perfect. I'm just saying that the, the, the Catholic leader must at the very least be willing to share the dangers at the front. That's true for priests, but it's also true for lay people. And I'm afraid it's true for lay politicians. And I'm sorry to say that very few Catholics in politics have done it. Some have, but very few. And very few in Ireland. I'm sorry to say that because... I think our, many of our politicians are, you know, they're fantastic people. They've done, they're doing a great job. But I'm sorry to say that some of them have, they've betrayed their faith. I don't, I don't know. So and if you can find another way to put it, I'm thinking, I'm thinking particularly of the abortion referendum. If you can find another way to put this, then you put it another way. Okay, I, I just can't think of another way to put this. And I'm taking no pleasure in saying it because these are gifted people and heroic people in, in some ways. And they're, they're, they're doing a remarkable job in some ways. A dangerous job, a difficult and thankless job, and I take no pleasure in saying it. Okay, I know it's easier to hurl from the ditch, but you cannot disown the Lord. And if you're caught, it's a fair cop. If the spy is caught, the best he can do is go to the scaffold with dignity. There's nothing to be done about this. Sometimes you just get caught. Sometimes there's nowhere to go. Sometimes you find that a disciple, an apostle of the Lord, will not be allowed to serve at that level. And there's a white martyrdom waiting for you. You're going to lose your career. You're going to lose your standing. The priesthood has massively lost its former social standing. The scandals plays a role in it. I don't question that for a second. But you, you listen to this and I'm telling you, the scandals only speeded up what was happening already which was modernity and the advancing secularization. We were going to get put in our place, so to speak, no matter what happened. The scandals just made it easier. And you'll find that the COVID thing now has sped up a whole load of massive historical developments as well. Some for the better, some for the worse. And now I'm saying this to you as we're coming to the end. I'm saying, I'm saying to you, OK, p- please, please listen to this. We're living in an age where the world cannot stand on unpasteurized food. We're living in the age of bland. We're living in an age where even good food can often taste of nothing in particular. An age when maybe people can't stand strong tastes anymore. And so we have pasteurized leadership, pasteurized teaching, pasteurized this, pasteurized that, pasteurized the other. Everything's safe, nothing can kill you. And yet human beings are as beautiful and brilliant and dangerous as we've ever been. So what does that tell you? It tells you that people are just going to get far better at hiding the realities of life in order to get power.
And you accuse Catholics of hiding. Let me tell you that many of your politicians, your diplomats, they'll all have learned to talk the talk and walk the walk. Now I'm begging Catholic leaders, I'm begging Catholics in the world, which is most Catholics, don't lose your flavour, for if salt shall lose its flavour, it is only fit to be thrown out. Remember the words of our Saviour while he lived on earth. Don't lose your flavour. Sure, we have to pass like salt, unnoticed, heightening the taste of the dish. But if you lose your flavour, what are you? What you are offering is absolutely crucial to the world and it doesn't know it. I remember being called, I've been called to a few suicides. And I remember seeing the state officials there and they were doing a great job and they were, they were telling the family, these are the numbers you can call, this is where support has offered everything. But what had happened was a profound spiritual catastrophe. It was enormous what had happened. And no amount of support will answer that. That can only be answered, I would contend to you, if God himself is willing to be crucified with your son or daughter who has taken his own life. And he has. God himself hangs on the cross. There is nothing pasteurised, nothing safe about the leadership God has given us, because we're not safe. The answer to our atrocious sinfulness, the atrocity of death, which resulted from our sinfulness, the answer to that was always going to be atrocious. God himself is crucified. It is that crucified and risen Lord, it is the scandal of the risen Lord with his spooky new body that can move through doors and bearing still the disgusting repulsive marks of his crucifixion, the holes into which we unbelievingly have to put our fingers, the wound in his side, the obscenity of that. God is there or he's no lover of us, but he is there. He is there. In our darkest moment, he is there. Our lowest sins, he is there. That is the God that the lay apostle must make apparent. That is the supreme leadership of the lay apostle, of the lay Catholic, of the Christi Fidelis Laici, of the believer in the world who makes that crucified and risen Lord, that sign of absolute love and absolute unconditional love and absolute saving love and hope available to everybody. And it is not safe. And it is magnificent. And I'm saying to you now, from the foot of the cross, from Calvary, I'm saying to you now with the full authority of the church, and I, I'm taking this, this piece of lay literature and investing it with the true faith to which all these things are oriented. Great music, great poetry, all points to God. All of it calls Ayos, 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 holy, 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 like the cherubim and the seraphim at the court of God. I'm saying to you now, there are no two words in the English language more harmful than good job. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Saint Brendan, pray for us.